0: If you visit the Great Salt Lake, you'll notice that the lakeside edges are dominated by the graceful heads of a long stemmed grass called Phragmites. This invasive plant, though beautiful, can replace native plants, deny fish and wildlife their food and space, block access to the water for recreation, and even pose a fire hazard, something we do not need in our hotter, drier climate. Recent studies by researchers at Utah State University have drawn upon multiple scientific disciplines to document the critical roles of native lakeside vegetation and the threats posed by this invasive plant. They are now directing this work to land managers and policymakers to develop better ways that we can interact with the unique, beautiful, and threatened habitats of our Great Salt Lake. This is Undisciplined. I'm Nalini Nadkarni and our guest today is Dr. Karin Kettenring from Utah State University's Quinney College of Natural Resources. Karin, welcome. It's great to be here, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, Karin, I I found your studies of the ecology of wetlands and, and in particular our own Great Salt Lake Just really intriguing. Um, And I I was fascinated not only by the information about ecology itself, but also because you've been able to approach basic ecological and management questions through multiple lenses. And we'll talk about that, but before we get into the study, I'd like to introduce you to our listeners. Um, Karin Kettenring's research is focused on questions relating to wetlands, invasive plants, seeds and restoration ecology. Her work is increasingly important, especially for those of us who live near the Great Salt Lakes, because of the ongoing shifts to a hotter climate that is causing our lake to shrink. Karin is a professor at Utah State University. Um, we, We love to host scientists from USU because that's where this radio program is centered. So thanks for joining us, Karin. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the specifics of your study, could you place your work in the area of ecology and especially the subfield of wetland ecology by putting
1: forward a few of the major questions that you and your colleagues address? So we are interested in not only understanding how plants and animals interact with their environment, but we are particularly interested in how to restore these aspects of ecosystems after they've been degraded largely from human activity. So we are interested in restoration ecology in particular, and that is focused on restoring all aspects of ecosystems. And our particular focus is on restoring native plants that are so important for habitat for wildlife.
0: Um, You know, I've been in Utah for 11 years now and have visited the Great Salt Lakes many times. But I have to say that I had never heard about this invasive plant Phragmites until I moved here and started learning more about it. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the ecology of that invasive plant and how
1: it affects the Great Salt Lake system. So Phragmites is a very tall grass and it was introduced to North America from Eurasia about 150 years ago. It produces these really elegant seed heads that we think people used as the original packing material in early um, boats of European settlers coming to North America. It's spread across North America over the last 150 or so years and is actually found all over the place. And along the Great Salt Lake, it has uh, really proliferated since the early 1990s after the Great Salt Lake flooded. So, the question is what's the big deal with Phragmites? Well, the problem is that it is so tall, it can grow maybe 15 feet tall, and it is so dense that it's nearly impossible for wildlife to move through. So, it just creates this impenetrable barrier for wildlife. And part of the issue is what it actually replaces, which is all these native species provide seeds that are food for ducks, as well as um, habitat for lots of bugs that a lot of migratory birds eat as well. I see.
0: Yeah, so I guess the Phragmites, despite its beauty, could be sort of the bad boy of invasive plants around our Great Salt Lake. Uh, Karen, you've written many, many publications and I've chosen just three of them um, to discuss with you this today. Let's start with this one about the assumptions that underlie effective ecological restoration of the Great Salt Lake. And this paper was published in 2021 in the journal Applied Vegetation Science. It's titled, Do Common Assumptions about the Wetland Seed Bank Following Invasive Plant Removal Hold True? And in it, you laid out really clearly uh, the assumptions that wetland managers make. Could you go over
1: some of those assumptions? Sure. So I think when we pursue management of wetlands, we think, the ecosystem is gonna respond in a particular way. So we expect that if we apply herbicide to control invasive phragmites, that we're gonna be effective at getting rid of it and that very quickly, the native species are gonna come back. So all those really important habitat species that we were talking about earlier. And the assumption is that the management is not gonna negatively affect the native plants that are storing seeds in the soil but that's actually not necessarily the case and that's part of what our research was looking at. Um, Ultimately after you went through the study with your co-authors what did you find out were those assumptions
0: correct or did you have to did you find that wetland managers actually have to make shifts in the way they think about the systems they, they manage and work with?
1: Yeah, some of the things we expected held true and other things were somewhat surprising. One of the good things we found out was that the manage, the management actions that we were pursuing were really effective in reducing how much Phragmites was in the soil. But one of the unfortunate things was, even though we reduced how much Phragmites seeds were there, there were still a ton left in the soil, which means it's going to persist as a, as a management challenge into the future. We were also excited to see that the management actions did not negatively impact the native some of the native plant species. So some species that we really care about from a restoration standpoint were still persisting in the soil and therefore will uh, be able to recover in the longer term. But one unfortunate thing that we saw was that the species that managers really value are uh, uh, three different species of bulrush and those species were present in the seed bank at pretty low densities, and then they did not come back in the vegetation over the length of the study. So that was really an important take-home point for us because it tells us that even though we want these species to be there, these bulrush species, we need to do something to reintroduce them. Got it. Well that's a pretty profound piece of information
0: uh, for both the ecologists and the managers to know. And in fact, one of the things I really appreciate about the work of you and your team, Karen, is is this interconnection that you've been able to foster between this very basic information that you've been out been able to find with experiments and observations, uh, with managers—that is, the people who are actually affecting, directly affecting the landscape—and that kind of takes us to our second paper, which was titled um, "Surveying Managers to Inform a Regionally Relevant Invasive Phragmites Control Research Program." And and that was published in the Journal for Environmental Management in 2017. And in your abstract, you wrote, managers of invasive species consider the peer-reviewed literature only moderately helpful for guiding their management programs. And so um, I'm wondering how you and your team went about actually finding out what land managers need to know.
1: Yes, definitely. So... Um we did this survey pretty early on when I started at USU. We I started at, at USU in 2008 and we we sent out this survey a couple years later. And so as a new researcher and someone new to the state of Utah, I wanted to know what do managers actually need to know to do their job better that I as a scientist can help them with. And you know, we're we're fundamentally motivated to do research that is useful and usable to managers. So we embarked on this survey. We spent many, many months developing the survey. I am not a social scientist, so we had some collaborators. (laughs) Good. We had collaborators that uh, have a lot of experience in doing formal surveys. I'm much more used to doing surveys of plants and seeds. So... Um, Anyway, we developed this survey and we gathered information on all the managers that we knew managed wetlands on federal, state, county, private lands, lots of duck club managers. And we sent out our survey and we had a huge response rate. It was pretty exciting. Everybody was just very excited to share what they knew about invasive phragmites and what they knew about how they were managing it as well as what their biggest challenges were. They were very interested in telling us their challenges so that we as researchers could potentially help with that. So it really turned out to be a nice collaboration and it was at the start of my career at USU, so the timing was fantastic. It really laid the foundation for what has become very strong collaborations over the last fourteen years. That is a beautiful story. I
0: love it, and I could just picture you. Gosh, how many years ago was that? In two thousand eight, you know, as a first sort of effort to to reach out and to figure out how you might shape um, a long term program that of useful research um, concerning these really complex interactions. Um, I'm wondering, you know, that was uh, that paper was published in 2017, and you mentioned that you actually sent out or started this work in t- 2008. I'm wondering if there were any lasting collaborations or even partnerships that resulted from this work in terms of facilitating exchange between managers and researchers.
1: Absolutely. We continue to work very actively with Utah Division of Wildlife Resources, Division of Forestry, Fire, State Lands. Uh, the Bear River Refuge as part of the Fish and Wildlife Service, Nature Conservancy, even many of the private duck clubs. We have ongoing conversations with them about what our research is finding, and we also get to hear what their continuing management challenges are. So the information that we gathered from this first survey was really focused on this invasive plant, Phragmites. One of the most interesting things to me that came out of it in addition to these collaborations, was hearing that managers generally did not think that they needed to introduce native plants after Phragmites was effectively managed. But then our results found from some of our research showed that actually reintroducing native species was very important. So we, since that time, have been able to spend a lot of our research efforts trying to figure out what are the best native species to reintroduce, how to reintroduce them, what are the logistics behind it to be successful when seeding and planting, and, and lots, of, lots of details that really have not been worked out for wetlands. Um, it's, wetlands are very different from grasslands and forests where people have spent many decades of figuring out how to seed and plant. So in wetlands, we're really lagging far behind.
0: That is fascinating. I love that your description of that interplay and the way that some of your research was actually catalyzed by these these uh, collaborations. Um, I think that's that's fantastic. I'm wondering too whether you know there are many other fields or at least some other fields in which this interplay or potential interplay between researchers and managers or practitioners really could use some help. I think about rangeland researchers and ranchers or forest ecologists and loggers and wondering whether what your approach of doing surveys of listening intently of practicing what one might call intellectual humility to take into account what these practitioners know i wonder whether what you've done with wetlands and wetland land managers might apply to some of these other fields these other areas of natural resource management and research
1: Yes, I think it's a model that is really important. And I I like your term intellectual humility. I think, you know, as academics, we can stay locked in our offices and our ivory tower, so to speak. But particularly at an institution like Utah State University, we have a mission to serve the public. And um, I see that as core to what my job is about. So Um, We do have faculty that have formal extension appointments where their engagement with the public is written into their job description for the rest of us that don't have extension appointments. We still, though, it's still very important for us to be uh, connecting with managers and the general public about the work that we're doing. So um, we hope that our, our wetland ecology research and our restoration and management research can serve as a model to other people that might be interested in similarly engaging with managers the public with policymakers, and so forth that's fantastic
0: karen you really are a model of a an academic scientist who does exemplary basic research and through your collaborations have been able to make these jumps to to other stakeholders outside of academia and actually that sort of leads perfectly to the third paper that we're considering, which is taking a jump even further and talking about the efforts of your team to connect your deep scientific understanding with, with policy makers. And I, I read your 2020 paper, which was uh, titled, Protecting Wetlands for People, Strategic Policy Action Can Help Wetlands Mitigate risks and enhance resilience. Uh, and that was published in the journal Environmental Science and Policy. And I was so pleased to read it because you know I really do think it is unusual for professors who are embedded in academia to intersect with this, this world of policy makers and decision makers. And I do understand that your co-author, Joanna Enterwada, took the lead on this paper, but you applied your academic knowledge to this effort. I was wondering, um, what motivated you and your team to take on the assembly of this paper?
1: It's a really interesting story, actually. Joanna and I developed a long-term collaboration around our teaching. We realized in my teaching about wetland ecology, students actually needed to have that broader policy context for how wetlands are protected. And then for her students, she was teaching water law and policy students they needed to have a deeper understanding of the ecology of the ecosystems that they were learning about from a policy perspective. So over many years, we did some cross cross-class collaborations um, between the wetland ecology students and the public policy students. So it was it's it was super interesting. So from these conversations, we realized there was a real opportunity to clarify for people how wetlands are underprotected in the law, particularly in the United States. So we started this conversation today talking about all the things that wetlands can do. And in particular, we focused in this paper on what we call wetland protective ecosystem services. And so wetlands are really important for flood control, for stabilizing shorelines, for controlling erosion. For storm protection, particularly in coastal communities, as well as fire protection, which is particularly relevant out here. And the sad thing is, even though society in general, I think, has come to recognize how important wetlands are to us, the way that wetlands are protected currently is very piecemeal and, frankly, very ineffective. And so we wanted to have some out-of-the-box thinking, so to speak, about what could be done differently to better protect wetlands. I see. Fantastic. I, I just love this part of the
0: conversation, Karen, because, you know, usually we think of interdisciplinary research, but what you described was this opportunity that came up from interdisciplinary teaching, which that led then to this this study that you did that was then published in the literature. So that that's really fascinating what did you propose? What were your sort of conclusions that you wanted to communicate to people who might read this, especially policymakers?
1: So the thing that we, what we are proposing in this paper is the formation of national wetland commissions, particularly in the United States. You know, we have specific laws for protecting aspects of our air and our coastal zones, but for some reason, wetlands have already been left out of the equation. And wetlands are important for many of these federal agencies, Um, you know, like the Fish and Wildlife Service, as part of the Department of the Interior, has all these national wildlife refuges. And so that is one part of wetlands, or one way that wetlands get protected. So we are suggesting that we bring together representatives from all of these departments within the U.S. government that could potentially have a say in how wetlands are protected to bring everybody together and have them in one particular wetland commission where everybody has equal say and somewhat separated from the executive branch.
0: Karin, you you closed this paper by saying It is time for bold and innovative policy action to incorporate wetland protective services into society's defenses against extreme weather events. And I'm wondering, do you think that this will happen even as we are seeing the increasing negative impacts of human activities on the Great Salt Lake?
1: So your question is very interesting. I actually received an email from someone from California this past week that asked me, if they should move from LA to Salt Lake City because they had read in the news about what was happening with Great Salt Lake. And they had heard about the concerns with dust and um, one of our recent papers that some other colleagues, Dr. Ed Hamill and Dr. Tricia Atwood and Dr. Janice Brainy led looking at um, heavy metal pollution in Great Salt Lake and its wetlands and um, what the consequences are of that. And so there's been a lot of, a lot of um, talk about, or a lot of press about these issues related to Great Salt Lake. So you asked me, um, am I optimistic? And I would say my optimism is increasing and it has been increasing over the last few years because there now are a lot of conversations about Great Salt Lake and its wetlands and what is important about them and what the economic significance is of this vast ecosystem and what we need to do to to save Great Salt Lake. And for many years, people were not really listening and were not really paying attention. It's unfortunate that I had to reach such a dire situation for people to listen. But at the same time, the what we see now is that the legislature is actively discussing Great Salt Lake and actively proposing potential solutions and listening to all the people that have been working on Great Salt Lake for so many decades and trying to incorporate the latest knowledge into their policy.
0: I'd like to shift a bit from this line of communication to a study that you did with the help of people who are incarcerated in the Salt Lake County Jail. I'm remembering the work that you and I collaborated on several years ago, which involved sort of a connecting the program that I established here at the University of Utah, the initiative to bring science to the incarcerated, with with your group's research project to understand the factors that might contribute to understanding how we might raise native bulrushes for ecological restoration after Phragmites has been removed. I was wondering if you could describe that study, you know, what what questions you were asking, the the scientific questions that you were asking that
1: that involved these incarcerated men. So there were two species of bulrush that we were focused on, um, hard-stem bulrush and three-square bulrush. And these are tall, slender plants. They look a little bit like a very tall grass. And they're very important in terms of producing seeds for migratory waterfowl. And we were coming to realize that these species needed to be actively reintroduced into Great Salt Lake wetlands once the management of Phragmites was completed. But we really didn't have much of a sense of how these plants grow in the early part of their life. So when you have pieces of their um, their rhizomes, there are little pieces of underground stems what kind of conditions these plants needed, um, what flood levels or um, drought levels they could tolerate and what type of salinity levels they could tolerate. So we had big buckets full of wetland soil and we planted hardstone bulrush and three square bulrush and we had different levels of salt and different levels of flooding. And we basically looked at how the plants did over time. And we collected data on them. This was part of Jimmy Marty's master's thesis. So Jimmy collected data on how the plants responded. And he had this whole crew of collaborators at the Salt Lake County Jail that were able to assist him in maintaining the plants and maintaining the treatments, both the flooding treatments and the salt treatments. And they could help him with his data collection.
0: And I know that we were able to get a publication from that and it was published in the journal Corrections Today, which is read by staff of correctional facilities. And I'm wondering now that some time has passed, what were your reflections of that experience of interacting with people who were quite distant from the, you know, the typical undergraduate or graduate students that you spend most of your time teaching?
1: I think what I realized from that process is that one so many different types of people can be interested in plants and all aspects of plants and find them exciting species to work with or exciting organisms to work with. And it also reminded me that science does not have to be limited to some small section of society, that the scientific process and um, observing how the natural world works, those are all things that anybody can be involved with at different parts of their life in different situations. Beautiful, I love I love that. That's a great reflection.
0: Karen, I, I really see you as a scientist who has had an amazing career and, and, and another many, many years to go. And you've addressed many questions in the realm of science and importantly, its application to society. So I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to share this fascinating piece of research with our listeners. I've really enjoyed learning from your perspectives and I want you to know, you and your team to know that we at Utah Public Radio wish you the best for your work in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for those kind words. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tiso, And I'm Nalini Nadkarni. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.